The Mysteries of Watergate, Episode 24, Burglary Information, Gone Missing. I want to talk to you tonight from my heart on a subject of deep concern to every American. Those who hate you don't win unless you hate them. I've been charged with involvement in a full, free, and absolute pardon unto Richard Nixon. What has come to be known as the Watergate Affair. Hello, I'm your host, John O'Connor, author of Postgate, How the Washington Post Betrayed Deep Throat, Covered Up Watergate, and Began Today's Partisan Advocacy Journalism. There is no doubt of the intensity of the Post reporting from the very outset of the burglary and arrests in the Watergate offices of the DNC. It was the Post who quickly announced the burglary, the arrests, and the possible ties to the White House and the President's re-election committee. The Post had two reporters immediately assigned to the story early that morning. Local crime reporter Bob Woodward was called to duty that Saturday morning, along with legendary jailhouse reporter Alfred Lewis, who knew the D.C. police well and had insider access. By the following Monday morning, the Post had assigned 10 reporters to the case. It is undisputed that the nation's attention was immediately drawn to the burglary arrests as a result of the Post reporting, which quickly pointed out the White House and CRP employment of some team members, as well as the Bay of Pigs connections of all the burglars and one supervisor, Howard Hunt. We also know that the scandal did not explode for months and that the public's initial take, while accepting the apparent employment of campaign employees, was ho-hum, no big deal. So, in short, the country would not have exploded in shock, even if a CIA connection or a non-campaign purpose would have been exposed at the outset. If so, what would it matter if the Post had reported more fully the intriguing facts we have here revealed about the burglary and its immediate aftermath? In fact, it would have mattered plenty. As the saying goes, one never gets a second chance to make a first impression. But even if so, the first impressions would not have been significant, no matter what they were. However true it may be that the country showed little excitement in the initial stages, when the scandal finally exploded, first impressions returned to focus, now magnified. The Deep Throat Woodward garage collaboration of October 1972 was the key journalism that ignited the scandal. This series of stories, especially the key October 10, 1972 story after the first garage meeting, relied heavily on the resurrected narrative that the burglary was seemingly a campaign-inspired event. Such was the soil which nurtured Deep Throat's hypothesis that the Segretti Dirty Tricks program, clearly campaign initiative, was related to the spying and sabotage of Watergate. To be sure, as we have explained, this was only a hypothesis proffered as a way to demand expansion of the FBI's burglary investigation into other areas which may or may not be related. In so connecting this to the campaign, the sensational reporting necessarily ignored the other evidence the FBI was then exploring of CIA involvement and its monitoring of meretricious conversations. So what I will call the Deep Throat Garage Reporting set the scandal and its journalism on its sensational path to a removal of a president while this journalism won a Pulitzer Prize, best-selling books, an award-winning movie, and glory for all Post participants. So why would better initial reporting have changed any of that? When the October reporting broke, the narrative fits snugly with the initial journalism. But let's say that the burglary stories would have had the cumulative effect of casting doubt on a campaign intelligence target. If so, the October stories may have provided the inference that the Oval Office ordered the burglary, just as it sponsored Segretti. But the October stories would not have, in that alternative universe, given rise to the inference that the burglary was about the campaign. 
Yes, the public may have concluded perhaps someone in the White House ordered this, but to what end? A two-ring or three-ring circus, not the one-ringer we got, may have resulted. Now the White House and the widely suspected Mitchell would have had an odd narrative on which to concentrate, as the public would be seeking answers to the mysteries of Watergate, just as we have been doing in over 20 episodes. History, somewhere between possibly and probably, would have been changed in this alternative time travel universe. So yes, the initial reporting was extremely crucial, so let's explore its accuracy and whether the Post intentionally ignored inconvenient facts. With this introduction, what can we say about the Post reporting on the burglary, the arrests, and the immediate aftermath? The Post, including its Woodward and Bernstein reporting and their bestseller, All the President's Men, has proudly emphasized how much it and its reporters enjoyed the inside track on the arrests and the evidence seized at arrest. Both in the Post's ongoing reporting and in Woodward and Bernstein's bestseller two years later, the reporters took pains to list in minute detail each item seized. For instance, one of the first reports of the burglary by the Post listed the following items seized. In the first post-reporting after the arrest of the burglars, in an article bylined with the name of Alfred E. Lewis, likely written by Woodward and Bernstein on oral report from Lewis, this first article describes what was found on the burglars. And I quote from the June 18, 1972 article in the Washington Post about the arrest. All wearing rubber surgical gloves, the five suspects were captured inside a small office within the committee's headquarters suite. Police said the men had with them at least two sophisticated devices capable of picking up and transmitting all talk, including telephone conversations. In addition, police found lock picks and door jimmies, almost 2300 in cash, most of it in $100 bills with the serial numbers in sequence. The men also had with them one walkie-talkie, a shortwave receiver that could pick up police calls, 40 rolls of unexposed film, two 35-millimeter cameras, and three pen-sized tear gas guns. In their book, at pages 15-16, Woodward and Bernstein also described those items taken from the burglars. The five men arrested at 2.30 a.m. had been dressed in business suits and all had worn Playtex rubber surgical gloves. Police had seized a walkie-talkie, four rolls of unexposed film, two 35-millimeter cameras, lockpicks, pen-sized tear gas guns, and bugging devices that apparently were capable of picking up both telephone and room conversations. Woodstein, in their book, then quotes part of Lewis's oral report verbatim, albeit with the ellipses left out of the oral report. Quote, one of them had $814, one $800, one $215, one $234, one $230, Lewis had dictated. Quote, most of it was in $100 bills in sequence dot dot dot, indicating ellipses. They seemed to know their way around. At least one of them must have been familiar with the layout, dot, dot, dot. Then the reporters go on to say, Lewis also noted in his dictation, one wore a suit bought at Raleigh's. Somebody got a look at the breast pocket, unquote. Note in these quotes by Woodstein of Lewis's oral report, my dot, dot, dot recitation that is, indicating ellipses in Woodstein's rendition for its book of all that Alfred Lewis had conveyed. Were there items of evidence listed by Lewis which Woodstein did not report? It seems likely at least something was left out in those ellipses. In the book, the reporters proudly note their jailhouse reporters with inside access. 
The most prominent was Alfred Lewis, described by Woodstein as half-cop, half-reporter. Lewis, they boast, had immediate access to the evidence and its inventory. They also cite as well jailhouse reporter Eugene Baczynski, an inside-track reporter. Let me quote from Woodstein's editor Barry Sussman in his book, The Great Cover-Up. Quote, also that Sunday, Larry Fox, our Night City editor, told me that D.C. cops might let a Post reporter look over some of the burglar's possessions. They did, and E.J. Baczynski, a police reporter, found two address books with the name Howard Hunt in them, and the notation, quote, W.H., unquote, in one, and, quote, W. period House, unquote, in the other. He also found a check for $6.36 from Hunt to a local country club. So it was that the Post, hardly 48 hours after the arrest, and through the work of its White House correspondents and a night police reporter, was able to tie the break-in to both the Nixon re-election campaign and the White House. We know that the reporter Alfred E. Lewis had a special status among the police in Washington, D.C., and he was allowed in the DNC suite, while other reporters were not, immediately after the arrest. So Lewis clearly got a look at all the evidence as indicative of his quotes. And Sussman tells us about Baczynski looking at the item subsequently found in the burglar's hotel room. So it appears that Post reporters had in their hands, or at least were able to personally view, all of the items seized in the arrests and in the immediate aftermath from the hotel rooms. Okay, one might respond. The Post examined each piece of evidence, or at least Lewis and Baczynski had access to what was seized. So what? Well, you may have noticed that there was an item not mentioned in the above descriptions. Yes, it was the key. The most important evidence in our country's biggest scandal was not reported as having been seized. This key would be legitimately claimed, without hyperbole, to be the single most important piece of evidence in our country's history. Simply noting that the burglars possessed a key, a key that did not appear to be a door key or a car key, but rather a desk, drawer, or cabinet key, obvious from its design, would have aroused in the public an obvious question in this curious drama. A key to what? Desk. What drawer? What cabinet? Wouldn't this key reflect the intended target? Yes, this key, as we have discussed, would have eventually pointed to the burglary target's desk, the desk of Maxie Wells. Yet, 50 years after the fact, very few people know of the key's existence, while the vast majority do not, including many erudite professors and historians. Now, to be sure, the key was taped to the outside cover of a small, pocket-sized notebook that had been in Martinez's breast suit coat pocket. Perhaps it was simply overlooked, and the item was listed simply in its entirety as a notebook. But it appears that the initial reports do not mention any notebook. In Woodstein's book, they mentioned two notebooks were seized. I previously had thought that these two notebooks included the Martinez pocket notebook. But in reviewing Sussman's book, The Great Cover-Up, I note that these two notebooks were seized in two hotel rooms of the burglars the day after arrest. So the only item which I know to have been seized but not mentioned in any post, report, or book is the Martinez pocket notebook with the key attached. So it may well be that one could understand why the key would not be separately mentioned, but interestingly... Even the pocket notebook was not separately mentioned. Still and yet, all of us can imagine circumstances in which perhaps it was understandably negligent that the notebook was overlooked. After all, there were some items like camera clamps that may not have been mentioned. So perhaps we have not yet made our case that it was more likely than not that the Post intentionally 
failed to disclose the existence of the key. However, there was a dramatic event during the arrest that was also not reported, bearing directly upon the key. After the arresting officers told the burglars to assume the spread ankle position, one of them, Eugenio Martinez, reached into his breast suit coat pocket to grab something. Arresting officer Carl Schaffler yelled at Martinez to no avail, and as Martinez persisted, Schaffler grabbed him while the burglar had an object in his hand, trying to rid himself of it. Martinez was trying to rid himself of the notebook with the key attached. Schaffler finally wrestled the key from the strong, wiry Martinez, nicknamed Musculito, for a strong, compact build. As Schaffler said later, he almost broke Martinez's arm. He offered later to author Len Colodny that it was clear Martinez was ridding himself of the key because the key would indicate the target of the burglary. So this dramatic encounter, including and involving an officer who was never shy about talking to the press, should have warranted a separate front-page story. But the incident was not mentioned anytime, anywhere in the post-reporting or in two comprehensive books to follow, one by Woodstein, one by Sussman, nor was the key ever mentioned. We cannot say what Schaffler or his companion, Officer Barrett, told the Post at the time, but we have some indication that they spoke. How so? One of the Post articles mentioned noted that the police were able to observe a suit label of Raleigh's, which was observed on a burglar's breast coat pocket. For those who customarily wear suits, they would know that the suit seller or designer is usually shown by way of a label on a breast coat interior pocket. Only one label on one suit, the Raleigh's label, was mentioned in the articles as having been observed. Since it is not customary for arresting officers to examine clothing labels during an arrest, the observation must have come in a spontaneous way at arrest, not related to any examination upon arrest. All burglars were wearing suit coats. Only one seller's tag was mentioned. It only makes sense that it would have been that of Martinez and his suit coat, and that the observation would have been made during his struggle with Schaffler, as Martinez was reaching into his suit coat pocket and pulling out, but not ridding himself of, the notebook and the key. So, we infer that Schaffler likely made the observation and was the source of the Raleigh's tag mentioned in the article. Wouldn't he, common sense suggests, have told reporters how he came to see it? Did he simply tell Lewis I saw Raleigh's tag without mentioning the dramatic struggle where he saw it? Such contravenes common sense. The encounter was simply too dramatic. We have included a verbatim transcript of Schaffler's interview years later with Kolodny in our book Postgate. This was a memorable, dramatic struggle between Schaffler and Martinez. But there is more to support this common sense. Schaffler was known to be talkative and had given scoops to reporter Maxine Cheshire of The Post, a good friend on numerous occasions. But even more indicative, it was Schaffler who himself, quote, dimed, unquote, The Post to alert it to the arrests because he said the suspects would not identify themselves. Parenthetically, the word dimed refers to the old phrase of dropping the dime on someone, which means taking a dime and putting it in a pay phone to make a phone call, presumably to law enforcement. This was a phrase commonly used in 1972, still somewhat used today. The Post thus had Schaffler's name and presumably would know to call him or interview him at the station. And of course, as we have noted before, Alfred Lewis and Eugene Baczynski, as jailhouse insiders, knew Schaffler and his colleagues well. It is difficult to believe that in the hubbub of the arrest that some Post reporter did not get wind of this dramatic struggle between Schaffler and Martinez. We note that Sussman has said he had 10 reporters on the case that weekend.
Certainly, Schaeffler was available in the days following the arrest for further interviews. Yet, regarding the key and the dramatic struggle with Martinez, Post reporting was crickets. Nada. Nothing. What else do we know about the Post's access to facts about the arrest? We know that the Post became close with the head of the FBI's street investigation, Special Agent Angelo Lano. Certainly, Lano had provided information that Post reporters later in the investigation misreported as Haldeman being a signatory to the slush fund, a dramatic event in the book and movie. Indeed, in all the president's men, Woodstein notes their wealth of contacts with the wide swath of FBI agents. So even if one of these reporters did not get the Schaffler-Martinez wrestling match from police at the time of the arrest, this should have been an item clearly available to the reporters from the FBI in the days following the arrest. So while we have no proof positive that the Post knew of the key and intentionally did not report it, at least by a preponderance of the evidence, we must conclude that to be so. As we noted in earlier episodes, on June 20, Woodstein published a cryptic reference to the sixth person involved in the burglary. This June 20 reference must have involved information learned from the FBI or police on June 18 or 19, days immediately following the arrest. We note this reference only to suggest that Woodstein had some access to investigators shortly after the arrest in order to obtain this information about the sixth burglar. Wouldn't those same investigators have mentioned the curiosity of the key or the struggle for it? We know that in the days following the arrest, the FBI tried the key on each desk in the DNC offices until it found it open the desk of Maxie Wells. Common experience tells us that, as is true with many desks, only one drawer, the lower file-sized drawer, had a locking mechanism. So it may well be that the key was for that one desk drawer. It appears that the FBI quickly determined that the desk or desk drawer to which the key was connected was the Bureau interviewed both Maxie Wells and her incoming replacement Barbara Kennedy Roden on June 27, 1972, a Tuesday, about one work week after the weekend arrest. In these interviews, the FBI inquired about who else would have given a copy of the key, about which neither had any knowledge. As far as these two ladies knew, they only had the two copies that were in existence. These interviews are memorialized in three FBI reports of June 27, 1972. Not only should Woodstein have known of these interviews through its FBI contacts, but of course, the Post was very close with the DNC, which would have known well of this scenario. Post reporters also had connections with the local police, who knew of the key seizure. Moreover, one of its FBI contacts, with which it inarguably had a strong connection, was that between Woodward and the head of the investigation, Mark Felt. Key was obviously an important issue for the FBI, and yet there is no mention in the post of the FBI's interest in the key or its interviews of Wells and Roden. Is it possible that the post did not know about any of this intense investigative activity? Yes, it is possible, but it is not probable. Remember, Deep Throat was speaking to Woodward from shortly after the arrest, where he notated the address book referring to Howard Hunt, as Woodward notes in All the President's Men. Throughout the Watergate investigation, the Post appeared to tailgate the FBI, seeming to follow the FBI and interview the same witnesses. This is documented by many observers. These analysts have shrewdly noted that most of the Post interviews followed closely upon an FBI interview of these same witnesses, with the very similar statements given, as would be expected. Did Woodward and Bernstein and the many other Post reporters on this case not learn of the FBI's interviews of Wells and Roden and the intense search for the desk? 
it is really inconceivable that this would be so. Now let us turn to a subject we have brought up previously, the sixth burglar who might have been involved. Here is the brief blurb of Woodstein of June 20, 1972, just days after the June 17 arrests. The article was entitled, Bug Suspects White House Tie Hinted. But in that article, here is a curious reference. Police sources say they were still looking for a sixth person believed to have been involved in the incident. Wouldn't it have been of great interest to post readers to report how and why such a person attracted interest? Clearly, whoever informed the reporters of this sixth person would have known or learned through follow-up interview that this sixth person was not dressed like other burglars who were wearing suits. And with the post reporters' close relationships with the arresting officers, they knew that no one else was in the DNC suite at the time of the arrests. And they also would have learned that this fellow strolled into the lobby from the staircase, obviously having been lurking somewhere. It should have been of great interest to the reporters that there was a sixth person, not in the suite with the other burglars and not dressed as the others were, suggesting as just one inference that some entity may have been involved other than the White House or CRP, or perhaps for a purpose other than that of the five arrested burglars. One other fact that the police and security officers knew, and the FBI likely as well, was the tape on the eighth floor locks. So perhaps a lurking individual could be inferred, unbeknownst to the others. This fact, perhaps connected to or explanatory of his non-arrest, would have excited widespread curiosity, which the Post may not have wished to invite. Nowhere, it appears, did the Post report on the tape on the eighth floor. The presence of the sixth man was an extremely odd aspect of an extremely odd burglary, but reported only vaguely by Woodstein on June 20. They offered no details known to law enforcement and most likely known by them as well. Why wouldn't they report these very curious, intriguing facts? But there is more that the Post's seemingly fulsome reporting on the arrest left out. The report did say that two drawers were open at the time. The reader would not know at that point that the location of the drawers might be a critical fact, but the Post likely did and did not mention the location of these open drawers. If the drawers were revealed to be that of Maxie Wells or of Spencer Oliver Jr. and his association of Democratic chairmen, this would throw cold water on the notion that the burglars were executing a campaign dirty trick. They were looking, it would seem to one with full knowledge of the facts, for something other than campaign information. As we may have noted in earlier episodes, we know from the court opinion in Wells v. Liddy years later that one of the open drawers was in Wells' desk. We posit that the key must have unlocked a big file-top drawer in Wells' desk. We note in Sussman's book a curious avoidance of mentioning the location of the open desk drawers. Let me quote from page 7 of Sussman's book. As they entered the Democrats' offices, the Gemstone team immediately went to work. They began removing the ceiling tiles above O'Brien's office and setting up camera equipment to photograph more documents. Now, anyone reading this would think that the drawers were right near O'Brien's office or in O'Brien's office where they were going to photograph documents. So it appears to us that when Sussman wrote this in 1974... After all the evidence was in, he was intentionally avoiding revealing where those desk drawers were. You will look at vain at anything the Post reporters have written that will tell you the location of these desk drawers. Finally, we come to the issue of the camera clamps. There is a question as to whether some camera clamps had already been placed on a desk at the time of the arrest. 
Author Shane O'Sullivan suggested that they were not yet on the desk because in testimony in the trial of January 1973, Officer Barrett introduced a written log showing camera clamps in a gym bag at arrest. But notwithstanding this note, we can infer from other evidence that some clamps, after all, there may have been several sets of clamps, may have already been placed on a desk. Indeed, the evidence presented in Liddy's defamation trial was that some clamps had already been placed on a desk. In any case, nothing was ever reported about the clamps having been placed at their location. It only makes sense that the clamps would have been placed near the open drawers, so if the location of the drawers was presented, perhaps the location of the clamps would have been redundant. Or vice versa, if the location of the clamps had been noted, then the location of the desk drawer would have been redundant. But mentioning the clamps, even without their location, would have given the public an interesting inference that the main purpose of the burglary was not wiretapping, but document copying. How many historically knowledgeable citizens know that today? Probably very few, especially since, with Hunt's later plea and Bazelon's ruling, there was no motive for the prosecution to do so. We note another fact. That is that Maxie Well was leaving her job, known as of June 27 or so, returning home to Mississippi. Question, wasn't this resignation extremely sudden? Was her abrupt departure related to what the DNC found in her desk before the FBI got to it? If the Post knew that Wells was leaving her position almost immediately after a burglar was arrested with her desk key, wouldn't a report of this be a logical reader to infer something negative, non-innocent, about what was in her desk that the CIA-connected burglars wanted? Point here supplements the queries we have regarding the sixth person. Were the antennae of the DNC and its Siamese twin, the Post, already sensing early on that prostitute referrals and the CIA were already in danger of discovery? Luckily, only one paper was reporting in any depth on the scandal in those early days, and that paper was deeply compromised by its close relationship with the DNC and also by its admitted loathing of Richard Nixon. Let us put aside the Post failures regarding the sixth burglar, the open drawer, the camera clamps, and focus on the most important failure, the key and the struggle for it. If the presence of the key and the target of Wells' desk was one of the mysteries of Watergate, the failure of the Post to report the key or its location is one of the mysteries of Watergate journalism. We here propose a solution to that mystery. The Post concealed salient facts intentionally, which would have been pointed to its ally, the DNC, and away from its enemy, Richard Nixon. Thank you for listening. I have just completed a book on this same subject, entitled The Mysteries of Watergate, What Really Happened. While it covers the material in our podcast, I have added two chapters of contextual materials and removed the repetition needed for a podcast. For those enjoying this series, it will serve as a valuable historical reference. For your non-listening friends, it will prove enlightening and entertaining. Thank you for your support.